You've downloaded the podcast of NewsHour Extra, and this week we're discussing African democracy. We've got the Kenyan elections on. They have been problematic, not for the first time, and it just raises the question once again, the extent to which democracy is working in Africa, the extent to which it is causing problems, is the issue that Western-style democracy is not suited to Africa, and we'll be discussing all those questions and many more. And we've got a very strong panel to help us. We've got Dr George Ayite, who's an economist and the president of the Free Africa Foundation in Washington. Nick Cheeseman, Professor of Democracy and International Development at Birmingham University, actually joining us from Nairobi. Andrew Mwenda, a journalist and publisher and member of the Presidential Advisory Council of Paul Kagame, the President of Rwanda. And here in London, Tegisti Amare, Manager of the Africa Programme at Chatham House, that's the foreign policy think tank in London. So, first question, let's start with you, uh, Dr George Aite. Is democracy working for Africa? Well, we need democracy, but it is not working in Africa because the autocrats that we have in power are manipulating, uh, often manipulate the process. And uh, this is why a lot of people have lost hope. I mean, take a look at uh, the elections in a parliamentary election 2015 in Ethiopia. The opposition did not win a single seat. And consider the recent elections in Rwanda. Paul Kagame won 99.98% of the vote. I mean, this sort of shakes faith in the democratic process in Africa. But we need democracy in Africa because a lot of countries have imploded because of lack of democracy. Professor Cheeseman, same question to you. I'm with my colleague here. I think that, you know, if we look at what's happened over the last 10 years, it's not been good. Africa is in a democratic recession. Most of the measures we have of democracy suggest that both political rights and civil liberties have declined over the last 10 years in Africa. But despite that, I think it's important to look at the success stories. Countries like Ghana, Gambia, now having a transfer of power, Nigeria, where many people didn't think it was possible, having a transfer of power. And overall, if we look at the democracies on the continent, with a small number of exceptions, they tend to be enjoying better economic growth and they tend to respect human rights better than their authoritarian counterparts. So I think we have to keep faith with it, even though it's been a very difficult decade. Well, you raise all sorts of themes we will discuss over the course of the next hour there. Tegisti Amare, uh, what's your general take? I mean, there are lots of elections. How's democracy going? There are a lot more elections, but challenges remain with the actual process. Democratization has clearly increased and there are declining military coups. Elections have become the main mean by which power is transferred. And these are clear indication of democratic progress. Pa- so it tra- will be power is transferred or power is clung on to? <laughs> there is there there's been uh, success stories, as Professor Cheesman said. There's been success story in Ghana. Uh, in the Gambia, despite some initial setback. But most importantly, there is more uh, civic engagement. Citizens are increasingly demanding for their right to choose their leaders. They're um, increasingly demanding for more democratic reform. This is an indication that there is an opportunity for reforming the process, which is where the African democracy is falling behind. Andrew Mwenda, you sit on uh, Paul Kagame's advisory council, Mr 99%. How does that seem from a democratic point of view? 
to make a general point, I would say that one, democracy is a process. It's not an event. And that process is traversed at a creep, not at a gallop. You achieve democracy by evolutionary means, not revolutionary means. And that if you look at Africa over the last 20 years, there has been significant democratic gains. In 1975, there were only two presidents in Africa who had come to power after an election that was contested with, by an opposition party. Except for Eritrea, practically every president in Africa today has come to power through an election where he contested against a candidate backed by an opposition party. Whether you look at mass media freedom, whether you look at economic freedom, the frontiers of democracy in Africa are expanding. Now, of course, democratic development does not follow a linear process or a, a continuous raising curve. There are, reverse, there are some setbacks here and there. But if you look at Africa across the board, there is greater and increasing democratic development than on any other continent that I know. You, do, you didn't mention the 99% thing there. Well, uh, uh, regarding Rwanda, you may remember that in 1822, I think, 1824, there was an election in the United States where James Monroe defeated his uh, uh, opponent in an election in the U.S. with about 98% of the vote. So there may be unique circumstances... There may be unique circumstances in a country that lead to a particular electoral outcome. So rather than discuss the outcome, we must discuss, specifically in Rwanda, what are the dynamics that led to that outcome before we could size it. Dr. Aita, you're trying to say something. Yeah, you know, I wanted him to address the fact that, you know, Kagame won 99.98% of the vote. I mean, that doesn't make it credible as an election. George, I mean, let me, you threw George, let me supply you information. In jail. And for, there's George, no freedom of expression that is not true. in Rwanda. George, that is not true. At the point the election was held, there was not a single opposition uh, politician in jail. Well, what happened what about in Rwanda Diane, Diane is... She was, why why, she was why is she being three... persecuted in Rwanda? Uh, 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 George, Diane was arrested three months after the election and she was a non-entity in terms of political profile in Rwanda. But what you may need to know is that all the major political parties in Rwanda decided that in the interest of national unity, they should back one candidate. So nine parties backed President Paul Kagame, and that is why the electoral outcome achieved such a result. If you got Honorable Raila Odinga in Kenya with Uhuru on the same ticket, you are likely to get them get 95% or 96%. That is normal in any election if you have a coalition of the two most powerful politicians in Kenya. The 99% or 98% does not become abnormal. I'll tell you what, Doctor, we'll pick up these, uh, these, this discussion as we move through the programme. Uh, just now, I think we should just talk a bit about Kenya because it is what's uh, sort of sparked this debate this week uh, and it is an election going on there. The court cancelled the first round in August, but then uh, this time there have been problems too in the rerun. Uh, the main opposition candidate, Raila Odinga, refused to take part, just been hearing, uh, clearing the way for President Kenyatta. So uh, what went wrong? Well, Rosalind Akombe was a senior member of Kenya's electoral commission until she fled the country a few weeks ago, saying she didn't want to put her name to an election that wasn't credible. You know, I, frankly, I do not see how. If we had more time, maybe we could. But when you look at the the sort of reasons why the Supreme Court annulled the 8th of August election. Many of those things, really, that are fundamental have not been changed. You look at the technology. 
as a commission, as a plenary, we made a decision many weeks ago to have the system audited. It has not been audited. We also made a decision that the system, that we needed to have quality assurance of the system, of the technology, before the election is done. That has not been done. You look at the training, and for me, that is really what made me realize that it is impossible to continue. We've been working with our staff on ensuring that we had the material ready. But when I traveled to Nyanza to various counties in the last few days, I realized that we were rushing the training of our presiding officers. And my worry is that if you are not doing effective training of those presiding officers, they'll make the same mistakes that they made on the 8th of August. You know, and the commission is not coming out courageously to say that there are these fundamental things that we have not done to be able to guarantee a credible election. There can be an election. But it cannot be one that can be qualified as a credible election. So that was uh, Rosalind Akombe, Kenyan Electoral Commissioner, who actually uh, skipped out of uh, Dubai where they were looking at some of the uh, ballot papers being printed and got to the United States uh, and has become very outspoken having the security of US residents uh, speaking out about the electoral process. Now then, Professor Cheeseman, that's the sort of technical problem with the elections. There are much uh, broader problems, uh, you know, corruption, ethnic affiliation. So can you run through the list of problems in the Kenyan example before we broaden it out? Well, we've only got an hour, so no. I don't think we're going to get through the list of problems of this election. But um, I can highlight for you a couple of the most important. And one of them is that there's a serious concern here that there are, you know, maybe we would call it a shadow state, maybe it's a faction of the government, but there is a group somewhere that doesn't want an election to go ahead that is credible and free and fair. And that group may have been responsible for the murder of Chris Masando, the IBC ICT official, so the person in charge of... Uh, who was acting in charge of information technology at the Electoral Commission, we saw just the day before um, the Supreme Court was supposed to make a decision about whether or not this election should be postponed because of the kind of concerns that you've just heard. And instead of making that decision, they didn't have quorum. And the reason they didn't have quorum is because some of the judges did not turn up. One of those who did not turn up had been driving in a car the day before and had had people shoot at that car. Now, she wasn't in the car when it was shot at but the person who was the driver bodyguard had serious injuries the car had serious damage and it's very clear that had she been in that car she may well have been killed she is one of the people who did not turn up which is why the Supreme Court was unable to make a decision so we have gone from a situation where the court was seen as being the key body that would validate the election that could decide whether the election should be postponed or not to a situation where on a technicality because somebody shot at her car we don't have quorum and we don't have that decision able to be made and if you're in the opposition you join the dots between all these different incidents and you say somebody within the ruling party is trying to prevent us from having an election by assassinating and frightening and intimidating and threatening key individuals, including electoral commission staff and judges. And that, I think, is at root one of the critical points that the opposition is um, motivated by in terms of withdrawing from the election. And as we've seen opposition supporters trying to stop people going to the polls and trying to prevent polling stations from being open. And to Gisti Amari, that makes the point that you can have elections, it doesn't mean you've got democracy. Elections do not make a democracy, but you cannot have a democracy without elections. Ultimately, elections is what we need for a credible 
transfer of power for credible, legitimate leaders to be established. Well, is it? I mean, let me put it to you that it just creates, and I'll come to you, Doctor, in a minute, I mean, it just creates uh, majority ethnic group rule, isn't it? Well, it is a challenge in a society divided by ethnicity, but it's not a problem that cannot be overcome. There are successful electoral processes in the continent that we can look at. Ghana, for example, the most recent successful election. And uh, what is important is to ensure that there are stronger political processes, stronger institutions. But the building of institutions is not something that can happen overnight. Dr. Ayite. Yes, I think uh, there's one factor which we need to understand in Africa that, and that is you already mentioned it, that elections alone do not make a country democratic. In addition, there are other requirements. Number one, you need an independent judiciary. You also need an independent electoral commission. You need an independent media as well as other requirements. You cannot have independence of these institutions when it is the president who appoints the electoral commissioner. It's the president who appoints the Supreme Court judges. The judges also, you need also to have an atmosphere free of intimidation, Otherwise, you know, the whole process is what Africans call coconut elections, which doesn't get us anywhere. And, Doctor, how many countries in in Africa would you say have those problems? Basically, judges uh, and the media and the Electoral Commission, all the rest of it, not being independent. Back in 1990, there were only uh, four African countries that were democratic. But right now, we only have 16 of them, one six. You, don't, you, you just don't have a democratic country just because you have elections. I mean, if you look at Rwanda, for example, doesn't have a free media. Ethiopia doesn't have a, a free media, an independent judiciary. Now, so these are the many problems that we have. So well, take a look at Ivory Coast. For example, Ivory Coast had elections, but the uh, Supreme Court ruled that Lauren Gbagbo won the elections. That lack of democracy plunged Ivory Coast into civil war in 2010. So elections are important. Credible elections are important. You're not, you do not have the institutions which will guarantee credible elections in Kenya right now. Professor Cheeseman, I'm just going to ask you, before we go back to Andrew Mwenda to tell us more about Rwanda, just to put this point to you. Do you think that if, yeah, if, it, if it is accepted that uh, Rwanda is not uh, very democratic in many ways, uh, it is still delivering for its people in important ways and producing economic pro- pro- uh, progress, which many, many people value very highly. Is that a justification for downgrading the importance of democracy? Yes, I mean, I, th- I feel for Andrew here because he's trying to defend the indefensible. And, and as you say, I think a better ground on which to do that is to say that Paul Kagame doesn't pretend to be a Democrat. He doesn't pretend that his regime is democratic. Elections are there as a kind of fig leaf to get a bit of international legitimacy. But the real grounds on which, you know, Kagame is justifying his government is a unity. This is a country that suffered a horrendous genocide and he is providing a degree of stability. And B, development. And clearly there are some major development goals. And I think it's a you know, you can make a strong argument that those are reasonable grounds on which to sacrifice a degree of democracy. My argument here has always been, though, that we have to be very careful when we trade off human rights and and freedoms for um, that kind of economic gain for two reasons. One, 
in my experience in Africa, there's a very small number of countries that have been authoritarian and had those economic gains. The vast majority of the authoritarian regimes have actually performed very badly when it comes to the economy, not very well. So Rwanda is an exception that shouldn't necessarily generate a generalization about sacrificing democracy. But also, too, as other people have said on the panel, many times in the past, we've seen a lack of democracy or a failure to manage the politics undermine the economics. In other words, we see violence and instability that comes from too much authoritarianism and too much of an exclusive government undermining economic gains. So my big question in a way for the government in Rwanda is there are some impressive economic gains now, but how do you sustain those for the next 20, 30 years unless you build a more inclusive political system that more people have a stake in? Andrew Mwenda. I am uh, surprised that uh, eminent professors are talking about Rwanda when they know very little about it. And therefore, they are relying on hearsay, prejudices and biases, preconceived notions. Let me tell you, Rwanda is in a process of democratic development. I told you democracy does not fall from heaven like manna. It is a process, not an event. If you look at Rwanda in 1994... Let us talk about the direction of change. From 1994 to 2000 to 2010 to now, there is a lot of democratic development that has taken place in Rwanda, whether it is at the level of democratic participation and at the level of democratic contestation. Great improvement. Two, if you look at Rwanda in terms of the direction of change, the change from a much more repressive government in 1994-95-96 to a much more representative government whose legitimacy depends on its ability to serve its citizens, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in agriculture, whether it's in education, whether it's in ICT. And if you want to talk about the technology of democracy, Rwanda has the largest density of fiber optic cables of any single country in the third world, including China. The Rwanda government has a one laptop per child program. Rwanda government encourages Rwandans to be on Twitter, to be on Facebook. Most 90% of communication in Rwanda takes place on social media. The government of Rwanda does not in any way, shape or form censure social media. So for the government to arrest a journalist running a newspaper of 200 copies and you say that is the end of democracy when the government has encouraged millions millions, not 200 people, millions on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on WhatsApp. They are discussing the future, the present and the future of their country freely without anyone being arrested. Really, when I listen to these professors, I say, what are they talking about? As you look around the rest of Africa, can can, can you, which you might see with a slightly different perspective since you're not sitting on advisory councils everywhere, do you think there are any strongman leaders who are ruling term after term after term who are a success. Can you, can, you, can you give us another example? Well, I could say that uh, Meles Zenawi in Ethiopia certainly was not uh, a, an epitome of high-level democracy. There was democratic development in Ethiopia, but Ethiopia was a semi-democratic uh, state that had a lot of achievement. Well, no, I could do... Uh, Andrew, okay. you are dead wrong on this. No dictator, military or civilian, has brought lasting prosperity to any African country. No dictator... Look, nobody is denying the fact that Rwanda has done well economically. You don't need democracy to engineer economic prosperity, but you need democracy to sustain it. What Rwanda has achieved is not sustainable. Takisti Amari, your shoulders shoulders shrank down with depression when you heard the Ethiopian example. Tell me why. It's not so much about the Ethiopia example. Rwanda and Ethiopia are only two countries in a continent of 54 countries. There are different levels of democratizations in every single country. We should stop generalizing 
it shouldn't also be a choice between development, economic growth and democracy. The two are not necessarily exclusive. You do need strong democratic institutions yeah, to sustain but, your okay. development. What well, do you, though? I mean, you're all saying that, but I think Andrew Mwenda is saying, look, it's going pretty well in Rwanda. I mean, 99.9%, he's never going to say it, but it's obviously you know, a dodgy result. But it is producing what people want. However, at the same time, you will see that we've had protests in Ethiopia recently, which is an indication that there is some detachment between what the government thinks the people want and what the people are really asking. So in spite of economic growth, in spite of development, unless people feel their interest is represented, it's not going to be sustainable in the long run. Andrew Mwenda, last Monica, word. In the f- let me come back on the issue of Rwanda. Because, you see, I, I want whoever is criticizing Rwanda on democracy should give examples. You cannot quote one journalist running a newspaper of 200 copies and refuse to acknowledge Andrew, the participation Andrew, of Rwandans Andrew, in millions on Twitter, on Facebook. 99%. It's absurd. Yes, but I, I, you see, you must, you need to put the 98%, 98.6% in in context. I have told you that nine of the major political parties in Rwanda backed President Kagame. Look, if you have political parties backing uh, Kagame, they are not opposition parties. They are, you know, other parties created by the government. Look, let's face it. That is not true. In fact, the parties that backed Kagame existed in Rwanda and they were signatories of 1993 Arusha Peace Accords long before Kagame came into power. That is one. You need to remember... Guys, let me finish this very important point. You need to remember that the constitution of Rwanda says that regardless of the numerical strength of any political party in an election... No political party can occupy more than 50% of cabinet. So even if Kagame won 100%, 50% will go to other political parties. So the way the political system in Rwanda and the constitution is organized discourages parties from having adversarial politics. It encourages politics of consensus, politics of cooperation, because whoever you play, you contest in an election with, you will sit in the same cabinet with them. So the RPF of Kagame occupies only 50% of cabinet. You ignore, in your analysis, you ignore these facts and think that Rwanda's constitution is the same constitution as the UK, which has take, winner-take-all politics. It doesn't. A reminder that you're listening to the NewsHour Extra podcast. This week we're discussing democracy in Africa. Each week we have an hour of discussion on a single topic. Uh, There are other podcasts on the BBC World Service, such as Witness. That's the one that looks at history and tries to interview eyewitnesses to great moments in the past, moments that have helped uh, shape our lives. But this week, as I say, it's Democracy in Africa on NewsHour Extra and a reminder of our panel. We've got Nick Cheeseman of Birmingham University, actually speaking from Kenya, Tegisti Amare from Chatham House, the Ghanaian economist, Professor George Ayite, and Andrew Mwenda, who sits on Paul Kagame's Presidential Advisory Council in Rwanda. I wanted to raise this issue of what other models of democracy might be out there. I guess some of what Andrew's been saying has been touching on that. And what other models of democracy might be appropriate for Africa? And we're going to hear now from Munamato Chemhuru. He's a Zimbabwean philosopher based at the University of Johannesburg. He believes Western liberal democracy is not compatible with African political traditions and African political reality. So I asked him, why not? I challenge the quest for liberal democracy as the measure for good governance and uh, political accountability in Africa. My argument is based on the observations that I make about um, the post-colonial African condition, especially considering 
the number of challenges. Poverty, for example, included corruption, bad governance, dictatorships, election competition, ethnic exclusion, and alienation of minorities, which are mainly championed by what I see as uh, elements of Western liberal democracy, particularly through multi-partyism and majoritarian democracy. So this has also resulted in various uh, in cases and instances of uh, disputed elections, vote rigging, military governments, anarchy wars, genocide, and uh, coup d'etats in uh, various Af African countries in the post-colonial era. But I guess what I'm asking you is, if you don't like the uh, liberal democracy, Western-style democracy, and you don't like authoritarianism, what do you like? What are you arguing for? I argue for an indigenous African model of uh, democracy. Almost all indigenous, especially sub-Saharan African communities, like uh, the, the, the Shona communities, the Zulu communities in southern Africa, despite the fact that we had monarchs, or maybe we were kind of uh, having situations where governance was based, based on kings and uh, queens, the sense in which those were just kind of uh, political leaders who were there to direct the whims and interests of the community, such that when communities uh, intend to come up with fundamental decisions on fundamental issues, then those political leaders kind of would uh, help the community to come up with their communitarian view on fundamental issues. So there we are. That's uh, an account of an African style of democracy that may uh, be attractive. Let's just bring Dr. George Aite on this, first of all, because you've written about this, and you have some sympathy for, I think, this idea of a more communal system, trying to get more consensus, trying to maybe uh, use democratic systems, put them in place that uh, do things slightly differently. Well... The Western style of democracy is one form of democracy which takes decisions by majority vote. In traditional Africa, we take decisions by consensus. Now, each type of democracy has its advantages and disadvantages. Now, in traditional Africa, the chief and the council of elders will come to a decision on a major issue. If there is a contentious issue, they will call a village meeting and put the issue before the people. The people will debate it back and forth until they reach a consensus. This was a common practice across Africa. Now, in the early 1990s, this village meeting concept was modernized into sovereign national conference. And it was a vehicle which was used to democratize Benin, South Africa, Kivet Islands, and so forth. So we could take the same model and build upon it. Professor Cheeseman, perhaps you can, with your uh, encyclopedic knowledge of global matters, you, you, can, you can help us with this. I mean, isn't that true everywhere, probably, that, 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 you know, there were villages and they had meetings and that's how it works in South Asia, or it used to, it works in Afghanistan today, probably. And yet, most of those places that it's still happening are very, very poor, and, it, and it's not a great idea. 
Well, I'd put, it, I'd put it slightly differently. I mean, I think there's a lot of things about that model that you can gain from. And surely the idea of more consensus politics and less conflict, which a number of people have talked about, is important. But we have to remember that we've seen this multiple times in Africa, right? This is not a new game. In the 1960s and 1970s, presidents in Tanzania, Zambia, Senegal, elsewhere, made the argument that what Africa needed was a form of consensus that would be an African form of democracy. And what they did with that was they institutionalized it in a form of one-party state in which opposition was banned, in which power was centralised around the president, and they used exactly the kind of language we've just heard. It's all about bringing people together. It's about consensus. And what typically happened was that over time, consensus went from being voluntary to being forced. It went from being free speech to being coercion. And at the same time, and this is a really important point going back to our broader debate, almost all of those one-party states failed economically as well as in terms of human rights. So that by the end of the 1980s, we were looking at a continent that was economically struggling and politically struggling and socially struggling. So the problem I have with this debate is it seems to me to ignore history. We have 30 years of seeing what Africa looks like under one-man rule, under military rule and under one-party rule, and it doesn't look good. And if you look at all of the survey data we have, which tells us what ordinary Africans think about this, the vast majority of people in every country in which surveys are done in Africa, one or two small exceptions, tell us that they want to live in a democracy and they reject one-man rule and they reject one-party rule. So I'm not so sure that actually this version of democracy is so alien to Africa. When we ask Africans, it's the kind of democracy they tell us they want to live under. Andrew Moenda. Look, first, attempting to copy and Western institutions onto African traditional societies is a very difficult thing. In fact, the cause of Africa's problems is always this mismatch between demands and solutions. You see, the demands in Africa are local, but the solutions are foreign. They are an attempt to copy and paste. I'll give you an example of Rwanda, which most of you do not understand and can clearly see. Rwanda went through a genocide that was organized by the state but implemented by society. Father killed children and wife. Neighbor killed neighbor. Friend killed friend. The consequence is that to reconstruct and reconcile that country, Rwanda has encouraged people, please tolerate and forgive those who killed your family, live with them in the same village, trade with them in the same market, uh, work with them in the same office. If the government at the top of the leadership asks ordinary citizens to forget the past, to forgive those who killed their family and live with them in the same community. And, but at the political level, the leadership are busy in adversarial politics of finger-pointing, shouting at each other, yelling at each other, as in mainstream democracies. How can you not lead by example? How can you ask people to forgive when you, the leadership, are quarreling. So Rwandan leaders have said, look, for us to encourage reconciliation in our country, to encourage forgiveness and, and, and political and social accommodation, we need as top leadership to work together. So the different political parties of Rwanda really work together under one umbrella government. Right. Well, let me just confront that. and then we'll ask, I'll ask the, the rest of the panel to come in on this, but I'm just going to put a point straight to you. If you look at some of the most successful uh, economies in the world delivering wealth, health and prosperity to their people. They have accepted these democratic models in India, for example, where no doubt they had communal village meetings 100 years ago, and now they are generating fantastic power and wealth. 
through an adoption of uh, basically Western-style democracy at the national level. And, and maybe many African countries would benefit from doing the same. Even India's economic performance has not been the most impressive. In fact, China has been performing better over the last 30 years, much, much better than India. India has so many problems themselves originating from its democracy. But the point I want to make is that historical experience tells us that democracy is a byproduct of the development process, not a cause of it. In fact, democracy has been a very poor vehicle for poverty reduction. Now, this is not to say that Africa should not embrace democracy. It should embrace it as a process, not as an event. Tegisti. It's not so much about how democracy is implemented. That can vary. Every country could have a and it does have different ways of going through a democratization process. The key principles of democracy, that ability to choose and replace your own government, the ability to participate in politics and civic life, protection of human rights and the rule of law, all of these principles which are part, the key principles of democracy, this is what is essential. How do you implement it and ensure that a country's people can enjoy this basic rights? It should be basic rights. So it is all very interesting to discuss different models, but this is really more about the process of how democracy is implemented in countries rather than whether uh, liberal democracy can work in Africa or not. I think... I think the fundamental process is debauchery of the uh, democratization process and the institutions. Let me give you a perfect example in Rwanda. I think after the genocide, more than 100,000 people were put on trial, and it was discovered that to use Western jurisprudence to try all of them would take almost a century. So Rwanda wisely chose to use the traditional gachacha system, but guess what? The government sort of subverted and debauched that process to achieve its own political agenda and to strengthen its authoritarian hold on power. We have seen this time and time and time again when governments took over a process and subverted it to achieve their own uh, political agenda. I'm going to move on now, and I know, Andrew, you'll be bursting to come back to defend <laughs> Rwanda, but I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to ask Professor Cheeseman to move us on. Not I, to defend I, the truth, no, 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 Professor Cheeseman. Now then, I want to ask you this, because you were suggesting that democratic development is linked in some way to, to economic development, and yet uh, I thought I read you saying that there is evidence that democratic states don't necessarily perform better than non-democratic ones. There's been some study in Africa concluding that. Can you help us with that? Well, first of all, I just want to say that I, I want to hire Andrew to do my PR in future because he finds <laughs> a fantastic job. Um, on, on that point, I mean, no one is denying that authoritarian states can't grow. Andrew made the point about China. We have a couple of states in Africa that have grown very strongly over the last 20 years, and they have been authoritarian. For example, um, so give I us don't, those. Well, Ethiopia and Rwanda have both got very good developmental figures over that period. But I think it's important to note that, in a sense, what we should be saying is that that certain authoritarian states can grow and certain democratic states can grow. Growth is not the limit or the preserve of one form of political system. But 
the analysis that I've seen on average shows that democracies grow more than authoritarian states in Africa, that the longer states are democratic, the more they get that benefit and the more they grow. And that some of the recent analysis has also shown that countries that hold elections that are reasonably competitive provide better services to their citizens in terms of spending more on things like education than those that don't. And I think this is a really important point, right? For every Rwanda, we have a Democratic Republic of Congo, right? For every Ethiopia, we have a Chad or a Cameroon, right? These are two examples that people keep coming back to because they're the two examples of authoritarianism that seem to kind of work. But the bedrock picture of average authoritarianism in Africa is not those states. Yeah, it doesn't work. It's all the states that are failing. Normally it fails. And I would also... And I would make this other point, right, that there is something cyclical here. Every 20 or so years, we get very excited or people get very excited about a set of authoritarian leaders who seem to be doing a good job on development. You know, it would have been Museveni and Mugabe in the past. Now they're derided as terrible authoritarian leaders who will never leave power. It's currently people like Kagame in Rwanda. Every 20 years, these people get up, they're lauded, they're seen as the visionary people of the future. And then every 15, 10 years after that, we start to see their reputations crack as they refuse to share power and as they undermine all of the good work they initially did. In time, we may well see the Rwandan system undermine itself in the way that these other ones have. And the problem with these other systems was that the gains they had were not institutionalized with checks and balances. So it was very easy for those authoritarian leaders to abuse the systems and to undermine what they'd done. And every year that goes on with 90 years... Dr. Aite, I'm delighted to hear the words Ivory Coast, taking us away from Rwanda a bit. Yes. T- t- you know, t- tell us about Ivory Coast. Yes. Re- let's remember that Ivory Coast used to be called an economic miracle. In the late 1990s, you had Hufu Bwanye, who was in power for almost 30 years. He adamantly refused to democratize the system. What happened in Ivory Coast? The country blew up into civil war in 2005. Babo came to power. He also refused to open up the political system. Country blew up again in 2010 uh, into civil war. Look, there's a law, and that is the destruction of an African country always, always begin with an adamant refusal to open up the political tr- process and transfer of political power. That is why democracy is important, and that is what Rwanda needs to take a look at. Look at that because also look at Madagascar. Madagascar went through the same problem in 2003. So the uh, length of dictatorship in Africa is very, very limited. Andrew Mwenda. What we are doing here is uh, we are selecting a few facts and trying to reduce the entire African experience to these very few variables. There are so many factors that may undermine the process of either democratic development or institutional building in Africa. I'll give you an example. At the time of independence, DRC had only one person, one Congolese in the civil service. It had not a single Congolese as a commissioned officer in the army. It had nine university graduates, a country of two million square miles. Those other factors, the lack of education, experience in state building, a large territory, there are so many factors that may explain the failure of DRC that democracy is almost zero contributor. Tegisti Amare, let me just pick up on what uh, Andrew Mwenda was saying there. To what extent is the colonial legacy the African problem? Not democracy, maybe, you know, the, the democratic development, economic development, all flows from that. I mean, that argument has been made over the decades. Mm. Maybe, I'm surprised I haven't heard it more here today, actually. But, it, but nonetheless, it is out there as an argument. It is an argument. It is a, 
most countries have gone through colonization, the colonization process. However, it's not something that we should continue dwelling forever. We actually need, as um, um, I, I can speak as an African woman as well, it is time that we move on. We make what we have work. An African woman in London, maybe. An African London, woman in London, but still an African. <laughs> it is time that we recognise the fact that the situation has changed. A lot of these former colonial masters, and I say that in quotation marks, are partners in development as well. Uh, There are a lot of things that we can learn from each other. We have a lot more choice of partnerships around uh, the world, in Southeast Asia, in the Middle East, all over the globe. And therefore, despite there being some legacy, it is not what's stopping us at the moment. Professor Cheeseman, I'm going to bring you in on this because one argument I wanted to, to put out there is, you know, many of these successful East Asian economies had colonial pasts and and they're thriving Uh, and yet quite often we hear about colonialism in Africa being the cause of the problem. Professor Cheeseman how do you uh, draw you know do you think there's anything relevant in that comparison? Look I think it's clear that Africa has a problematic colonial past and in many of the countries in Africa that we've talked about tonight Rwanda, Kenya and so on there was a colonial experience which polarized ethnic identities and hardened ethnic identities and it's very clear that that process was in some ways a poisonous legacy for contemporary politics because it's the foundation for much of the kind of winner takes all politics and the ethnic tension that we're we're talking about today so I don't think we should ignore that at all but I also think that we need to give African agency, right? I mean, Kenya's problems today are about decisions made by political leaders after the, over the last two years. Um, they're not simply about the sort of colonial history. And similarly with other countries, where we've seen high levels of ethnic violence, it's because p- political elites in Africa have made specific decisions to exploit those identities and use them for their own ends. So I think, as other people have said, this isn't simply about an inherited colonial legacy that continues to bind. This is about the way that political leaders have made conscious decisions. And I think one of the things we need to put on the table here, you know, is how widespread some of the problematic processes are around elections. I'm bringing out a book soon called How to Rig an Election. And some of the figures for Africa are really staggering. I mean, we have something like 60% of elections that actually feature significant vote buying. We have something like 30% of elections that feature significant intimidation of the opposition or violence. You know, in those kinds of contexts, it's very difficult to manage elections in a way that they don't produce negative as well as positive results. But those things are not simply legacies of the past. They're being done because political leaders know that they can get away with it and know that that can be used to keep themselves in power. George Aite. Well, the po- are they OK, Andrew Mwenda. Oh. Go on. We need to understand that Africa has very many variables. This is the most ethnically fractionalised. We have the most ethnically fractionalised countries in the world. You go to a country like Tanzania, 129 ethnic groups. You go to Congo, about 150. You come to Uganda, about 60. That is a very important variable yeah, but what, in, what about in an analysis of Africa. In, India is like that. It, Yes, but India is facing the same problems of Uganda. I can tell you, if you study India, there is a good paper by uh, Prichette, a professor at Harvard, called India is India Flailing State. The ability of the state in India to serve, to perform 
routine functions is characterized with, by incompetence, corruption, apathy, foot dragging, and indifference. Well, it's going so pretty India well. is not very different from a typical African country. It's going pretty well. Yes, but many African countries, yes, I'm telling you, African countries are some of the fastest growing economies in the world. If you go to the IMF website and look at the table, Ethiopia is among the fastest growing economies in the world over the last 20 years. Uganda is among the fastest growing economies in the world over the last 30 years. Rwanda is among the fastest growing economies in the world. You can find Equatorial Guinea, you can find so many African countries among the best performing economies in the world. But the issues we need to address about Africa is Africa has a very unique experience. One of that experience is a post-colonial experience. Another one is a pre-colonial experience. Another is a colonial experience. I'll give you about Asia. By 1960, South Korea had more than 58,000 engineers. A country with 58,000 engineers, of course, can put a man on the moon. A country with a, not a single university graduate, and you expect it to, put, to place a man on the moon in five years after getting independence, please. Dr. Aite, can you give a view on this? Yes, I mean... Uh... I don't think there's any question that, you know, the colonial policies in, in many, many cases, in several, in several cases, were atrocious and they discriminated against black Africans. But I think this is where we should recognize that after independence, many of the post-colonial leaders pursued the wrong type of policies, wrong type of economic policies. Look, they all claim to be socialism. Socialist, but then the type of socialism they practice in Africa was a peculiar form of Swiss bank socialism. And politically, they also pursued the wrong type of policies. Policies of one-party states and uh, life presidents, they banned political parties or opposition parties. All that led to the ruin of many African countries. You cannot forever blame the colonialists. I mean, the leadership ought to take responsibility for their own bad policies. Right, I'm going to ask a question to all of you. Where you see the trends in the next 10 years? Uh, why don't we start with you, Tagisti Amare. In 10 years' time, where will these arguments about democratic development be? We need to, first of all, look at the ageing leaders as well. There will be change. Change will come from the fact that the youth population will start finding space to be more active in the political process. That will be a significant move forward. Looking ahead, I think that's the most significant one. And there needs to be more inclusivity, women inclusivity in the political process as well. And that is something that looking ahead, there needs to be more space and it doesn't look very good at the moment. Professor Cheeseman, if we had this discussion in 10 years' time, would it be any different? I think it will be different. I mean, one thing I would say, going back to the Kenyan case, is for everything we said about Kenyan elections and the difficulties the country is facing today, Kenya is a much uh, stronger country economically and politically than it was 25 years ago. And if you'd have been in Kenya, I think in the late 1980s or early 1990s, a lot of violence, a lot of repression, very low economic growth, not many opportunities, and you came today and to see you know, modern, thriving Nairobi, you would have to conclude that this has been a tremendous improvement. And not just sort of economically in terms of freedom of speech, but also in terms of the fact that we have a new constitution in 2010 that set up an independent Supreme Court that was willing to rule against the president in the most important issue of all, an election petition. So I see incremental gains throughout this process of struggle. And I think what we'll see over the next 10 years is politics in a lot of countries becoming more competitive. And as it becomes more competitive and opposition parties do a better job and form coalitions, that's what led to victories for the opposition in Nigeria 
that's what led to opposition victory in Gambia, we'll see greater repression. So greater competition, contestation will lead to greater repression. And in the short term, that will look bad. But I think longer term, out of that struggle, we will see countries like Kenya that actually make democratic progress and introduce new constitutions. So it's not going to be easy. It's probably not um, going to be pain-free. But I think in 10 years' time, the balance will be shifting towards democracy rather than away from it. Andrew Mwenda, do you agree? Actually, I agree 100% with Professor Chisman. Professor Chisman, next time I'm in Birmingham or in Kampala, I want to buy you a beer for what you have said. Uh, What I would like to add is that if you look at Africa, given its current social structure, 80% or 70% peasantry, you look at the level of education, you look at the level of income, and compared to Europe Europe at the same level of development, Africa is being managed much better than Europe when it looks like Africa. The challenge we're seeing in Africa, challenges of poverty, they are not challenges of bad leaders. And at a specific level of per capita income, at a specific level of social structure, where I mean what is the ratio of urban people to rural people, there are certain specific structural conditions that produce a particular type of politics. So Africa is not dysfunctional. A lot of the politics we are criticizing is because we are comparing it with somebody called Belgium, Holland, who have gone through 300 years of political evolution. Africa is not dysfunctional. Africa is working very well. And I think at the current rate, it is progressing better than Western Europe towards greater democracy, towards greater liberty, towards greater freedom. George Ayate, do you, do, you, do you share this optimism? Well, look, the next five years will be dangerous and trying times for Africa, simply because the reform process has stalled. Economically, we only have fewer than five African countries that we can classify as economic success stories. It has remained the same for the past eight years. Democratically, we only have 16, one six, for the past eight years as well. We're not moving forward on the democratic front. And without reform, more African countries will implode because Africans are not going to sit there and tolerate authoritarianism. They're going to get up and fight. But you see, the problem, there's a new wrinkle in the problem, and that is China. Hitherto, for the West gave aid to African countries on condition that they reform their economic and political systems. China came along and said, look, we're going to give you aid, but we're not going to insist on any conditions at all. So the incentive to reform has disappeared in Africa. Okay, well, thank you very much for those very contrasting assessments to George Aite, to Tagisti Amare, Professor Cheeseman and Andrew Mwenda. I'm very grateful for your uh, very lively discussion today, all four of you. And uh, if you want to listen to the programme again or if you just caught the second half of it or something and want to hear it all, the best way to do it is get the podcast, the BBC NewsHour Extra podcast. You can get an hour of discussion on a single topic every week. You can email us, newsout.extra at bbc.co.uk or tweet at bbcnhextra with any comments you've got. But for now, that's it. So from Owen Bennett-Jones here in London, goodbye.